This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hi there. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, family psychologist. But I don't believe in psychology. I think it's a proverbial crock. And syndicated newspaper columnist, author of about 16 books, and also a public speaker. Travel around the country nine months a year, basically coinciding with school year and speak primarily in churches uh, and Christian schools. I have talked about, if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website, johnrosemond.com, J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D, where you can also find my last five weekly newspaper columns as an added bonus. How about that? So I have talked about this individual before, and I will undoubtedly talk about her again, because one aspect of my mission in culture is to counter the effects of of the progressive parenting propaganda that's been out there for 50 years and has completely polluted America's parenting waters and is still out there. These people are still beating the same old tired drums when it comes to the raising of children. And uh, I am going to, to the best of my ability, provide the counterweight to, uh, to that sort of stuff. The Wall Street Journal's parenting columnist is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Her name is Allison Gopnik, or Dr. Allison Gopnik, as I'm sure she prefers. In a recent column, she says there's no difference between a child whose primary interest is reading and a child who uses social media obsessively. There is no fundamental difference between a child whose primary interest is reading books, books, and a child who uses social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc., obsessively. Now, full disclosure, I have a Facebook and Twitter and Instagram account, or accounts, My daughter, who works for me, manages those accounts. I have told my daughter I don't ever want to have to go on Facebook, don't ever want to have to use Twitter, don't want to ever have to use Instagram. My goal, I call it an anti-goal, is to never go on and actively participate in those social media. So although I have a Facebook account, a Twitter account, an Instagram account, Lord knows what else, I have never been on any of those websites. So full disclosure, that's me. I'm a Luddite when it comes to technology. I learn what I absolutely need to learn, and that's it. So in this column that I'm referring to, which appeared back in March, she recounts In fable form, Alison Gopnik, her childhood obsession with what she 
names the device, which turns out to be books. So she writes this fable about this child who is obsessed with the device. And the device, it turns out, is books. And the child is Alison Gopnik when she was a youngster. Gopnik then claims to know of research supporting the notion that reading books, and the word she uses is hijacks, large portions of a child's brain, portions that, quote, had originally been designed for other purposes. Now, by designed, she does not mean creation. She does not mean through the actions of God. She means designed through the random, mindless actions of evolution. Gopnik has made it perfectly clear in other columns that she has written for the Wall Street Journal that she does believe in Darwin's theory. She is an advocate, and she believes to the point that she believes that anyone who does not believe is a fool. Well, Again, she claims to know of research supporting the notion that reading books hijacks large portions of a child's brain, large portions, mind you, that had originally been designed for other purposes, her words. Well, I keep up on research of this sort, and while I don't claim to have seen it all, I've not heard of any research that compels such a broad conclusion. The studies I'm familiar with all support the view that the human brain is ideally suited to learning to read. In other words, it was designed for reading by God. If symbol-based print media, that is books, are presented to a child at the proper time and in the proper fashion, the brain, the human brain, engages naturally and effectively. Learning to read does not hijack areas of the brain designed for other purposes that Gopnik, by the way, most conveniently never identifies. In effect, Gopnik describes the brain as a zero-sum operating system in which learning one skill displaces the ability to learn something else. Well, that might describe a mouse brain, but it doesn't come close to describing the amazing learning capacity, the absolute miracle, if you will, of a human brain. To bolster her thesis, Gopnik cites a woman named Dana Boyd. Dana Boyd. Now, Envision this, Ms. Boyd does not capitalize the first letter of either her first or last name. She is lowercase d, Dana, lowercase b, Boyd. Ms. Boyd works uh, at, uh, she teaches at New York University and works at Microsoft Research. So, Gopnik is using the research of an individual who works for Microsoft to support her thesis that Internet-based social media are not harmful to children. Are you getting this? Obviously, Boyd is not impartial. 
She works for a company that's heavily invested in new technologies. And it is clear from her Wikipedia biography that she thinks social media are way cool. How did she come to her conclusions? By hanging out with teens and interviewing them, that's how. In other words, to find out how social media are affecting teens, she gets social with teens. To be perfectly clear, this is not science. Gopnik begins her column by asking, how does technology reshape our children's minds and brains, but never gets around to answering the question. She delves no further into the subject than to reference lowercase d, lowercase b, Dana Boyd's social work and conclusion to the effect that while it requires new considerations, the new social media simply enable teens to do what they have always done, form communities, flirt, gossip, and rebel. The kids are all right, she concludes, quoting the rock band The Who. No, they aren't. The very best research into the effect of digital technologies on the developing brain has been done by psychologist Jane Healy, H-E-A-L-Y, author of Endangered Minds and Failure to Connect. Now, interestingly enough, Healy is also a professor at the University of California. Healy has found that screen-based devices compromise functions such as sequential problem-solving, attention span, and verbal reasoning, all of which are strengthened through the process of reading. Healy is everything Gopnik and lowercase b Boyd are not. First, she has bona fide scientific credentials. Second, she is impartial, in other words, objective. And third, her conclusions support common sense, which, folks, I have maintained for many, many years. And that is that good social science supports common sense. So if you want to know if a study in the social sciences is any good, simply ask yourself, do the conclusions of this particular study resonate with common sense? Do they make sense? If they do, then the study is probably good. Another thing that's interesting is that good social science lines up with biblical principles, whether these individuals who are doing the research are willing to admit it or not. So speaking of common sense, all one has to do to assess the impact of what I prefer to call anti-social media on teenagers is watch them stand around in groups texting rather than talking. Or talk to a teen who keeps looking at her cell phone during the, quote, conversation, end quote, during which she demonstrates her mastery of two- and three-word sentences like, uh, yeah. Speaking as a subscriber to the online version of the Wall Street Journal, you guys really dropped the ball on this one. 
and unfortunately continue to drop the ball ever every single time you print Allison Gopnik's absurd column. I'm John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So, American Family Radio. We'll be back in a few. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could stay with us. And for those of you who are just joining us, this is Because I Said So with John Rosemond on American Family Radio. The program is all about what we in America today call parenting, which is uh, more accurately called raising or rearing of children. I, uh, When I travel in my car, I generally surf talk radio. And I was uh, thus surfing the other day and came across a libertarian talk show host. No point in uh, mentioning the individual by name. The name is not important. Who was talking about homosexuality? And in the course of this uh, monologue, said host made This remark, almost verbatim, why would anyone choose a lifestyle or behaviors that are uh, so generally disapproved of by society in general? Why would anyone choose to, in other words, be homosexual when homosexuality is disapproved of by so large a segment of the general population? Folks, the question is what is called a red herring. It avoids the issue and implies that the issue is not what the real issue is. And to help you understand what I just said, let me pose the question this way. Why would anyone choose to be a murderer when murdering people is so generally disapproved of by so many people in culture? Why would anyone choose to be a rapist when rape is so generally reviled by the general population? Why would anyone choose to assault another individual without just cause when assault and battery is so generally reviled, disapproved of, condemned by the general population? In other words, folks, if we use this talk show host's reasoning, then murderers can't help it, rapists can't help it, people who commit assault and battery can't help it, and we know they can't help it because no one in their right mind would do something that is generally disapproved of. In other words, folks, this argument, which you hear so often and I, quite frankly, I was, I was shocked to hear it from 
a individual who is uh, generally conservative, libertarian, uh, you know, my general feeling about these people is they usually make sense. If you're looking to listen to people in America who make sense, well, the overwhelming majority of those people are on the right side of the political, socio-cultural spectrum. And here's this guy who will remain anonymous, spouting what is, in effect, a line from the left-wing playbook on uh, pro-homosexual propaganda. It, uh, it, it really shocked and surprised me. The fact of the matter, and this is a fact, ladies and gentlemen, is that scientists have been diligently searching for the so-called homosexual gene or genes or the hormone that floods the fetus during a pregnancy and causes homosexuality for what, uh, over 30, 40 years. And during this time, we have been successful at almost completely mapping the human genome, which was in and of itself an incredible accomplishment. I, I mean, almost unparalleled in the history of science, um, although we've grown to sort of expect such things these days. We're not as awed by them as, um, say, people were a 100 years ago when penicillin was discovered or something like that. But no one has yet found the homosexual gene or genes. No one has yet found the homosexual hormone that floods the fetus during gestation and so on and so forth. And they're not going to because God makes it perfectly clear in his word that he condemns this behavior. And he's not going to condemn something that he created, however inadvertently he might have created it. I say all of this in part because today's parents, first of all, they're, they're bundles of anxiety and many of them, especially fathers, the minute they see any sort of behavior on the part of a male child that doesn't look completely 100% masculine, they begin asking themselves, is my son, and we're talking about three, four, five, six-year-old kids, is my son homosexual? Ladies and gentlemen, homosexuality is not biologically determined. I cannot emphasize this enough. There is no science to support this myth. And a child of four, five, six years old, the child's sexual identity, if you will, has not been established at that age. Uh, children four, five, six years old have not made the decision to be either heterosexual or homosexual, but we do know that the overwhelming majority of them are going to practice normal, sanctioned, biblically sanctioned, uh, uh, enter into normal, biblically sanctioned sexual relationships, um, monogamous, when they grow up. We know that. So, And we also know that there are times when girls do boy things and boys do 
girl things. So, folks, stop worrying so much about everything. Calm down. As my daughter sometimes says, chill, take a load off. Now, I was, uh, you know, I continued listening to this host, and he said uh, the research shows that uh, these people, homosexuals, make, quote, pretty good parents. Uh, No, they don't. Um, The research does not show that, and they do not. And their good intentions uh, don't matter, by the way. The American College of Pediatricians has looked at all of the research in question and finds that the only research showing positive outcomes of homosexual parenting is pretty bad research, research that proves nothing except that the people conducting it were either biased from the get-go or don't know how to conduct good research. With respect to the good research, which is hard to find, but it's out there, The American College of Pediatricians has the following to say, quote, data on long-term outcomes for children placed in homosexual households are very limited and the available evidence reveals grave concerns. Those studies that appear to indicate neutral to favorable results from homosexual parenting have critical flaws, critical flaws, such as non-longitudinal design, inadequate sample size, bias sample selection, lack of proper controls, and failure to account for confounding variables. Child-rearing studies have consistently indicated that children are more likely to thrive emotionally, mentally, and physically in homes with two heterosexual parents versus a home with a single parent, violence among homosexual partners is two to three times more common than among married homosexual couples. Homosexual partnerships are significantly more prone to dissolution than heterosexual marriages, with the average homosexual relationship lasting only two to three years. Homosexual men and women are reported to be inordinately promiscuous involving serial sex partners, even within what are loosely termed, quote, committed relationships, end quote. This is from the American College of Pediatricians. Individuals who practice a homosexual lifestyle are more likely than heterosexuals to experience mental illness, substance abuse, suicidal tendencies, shortened lifespans, although some would claim that these dysfunctions are a result of societal pressures, the same dysfunctions exist at inordinately high levels among homosexuals in cultures where the practice is more widely accepted. Children reared in homosexual households are more likely to experience sexual confusion, practice homosexual behavior, and engage in sexual experimentation. Adults and adolescents who adopt the homosexual lifestyle, like their adult counterparts, are at increased risk of all manner of mental health problems, including major depression, anxiety disorder, conduct disorder, substance dependence, and especially suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. All of that, folks, from a very 
research-oriented group, the American College of Pediatricians. In other words, being gay isn't really gay at all. It is a bummer. But hey, if two adults want to bring this bummer down in their own heads, I say let them. It is not good for them. It is not good for people around them. But let them. This is a free country. But bringing this bummer down on children is another matter entirely. This is John Roseman because I said so. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're on American Family Radio every Saturday afternoon, 5 o'clock Central Time. Thanks for joining us. I hope you join us again. Take care.